So this morning, we are going to be in the book of Colossians. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to this epistle by the Apostle Paul. And our text specifically will be in chapter 3, in verses 12 through 15. And before we even get to that, I'd like to kind of lead us into that, establish some context. We're dropping into the middle of this this letter. And uh, just as a disclaimer, uh, some people saw the title and thought I was going to be preaching on modesty and Christian clothing. And no, that was just, uh, I mean something else by it. We're talking about spiritual realities this morning, uh, the kind of apparel that uh, matters most to God. And it's not the outer man, it's the apparel uh, that adorns the inner man that he looks at and sees and cares about. And so that way you can just maybe shift the gears of your mind to think, okay, we're not talking about modesty this morning. Maybe that's why somebody dressed up a little, a little more, <laughs> perhaps. But that's okay. We say, come as you are in this church. Um, but anyway, in, in Colossians, <clears throat> leading up to this passage we're going to look at, in the first two chapters, the, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church at Colossae, and he explained to them, he focused on explaining to them the, the supremacy of Christ over all of creation, and in light of that, the sufficiency of Christ in their salvation. Through faith in Christ, they had all they needed. They, their sins are forgiven. They are right with God. Uh, they had newness of life and life in his name. They didn't need to be caught up in the trappings of man-made religion that is claiming to make you more spiritual somehow because they had their complete sufficiency in Christ. <clears throat> and then in, starting in chapter 3, after focusing on the person and work of Christ and all that means for them, Paul then gave the Colossians numerous exhortations in Christ-centered living. He, he turns to focus on application in Christian living in the second half of his letter, starting in chapter 3. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul exhorted them to seek and to set their minds on the things that are above rather than the things that are on earth. In other words, they were to be striving for the things that are important to God, the things that He delights in, and that are of value beyond this present age in which we live. They were to be heavenly-minded during their earthly lives, their, their newness of life in Christ. And as Christians, all of us are to live in this world in light of the world to come. That is, and in light of Christ's second coming, in the light of his coming kingdom, in which we have been made citizens. That is our future. That's where our, our hearts are to be set upon. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. <clears throat> Christ is our life, Paul says in verse 4. And we as his people are looking forward in hope to his return into our own resurrection unto glory. That's heavenly mindedness. It's forward looking at the hope and the fulfillment of the promises of God towards us in Christ. And in light of this, Paul says in verses 5 through 8 then that the Christians are to stamp out any earthliness that is in them. That is, any traces of our old sinful self-serving ways which run contrary to the teaching and example of Christ and which are a hindrance to us living in a manner that is worthy of him and pleasing to him. We're to stamp those old ways out, those ways that characterize our lives, our former lives. 
And in order to orient our lives around Christ and to experience the fullness of the new life that we have in him, we must, Paul says, be putting to death and putting away the sinful desires and behaviors that used to rule our hearts and mark our lives. And then in verses 9 through 10, Paul reminds us of an important fact concerning our salvation. He says, we have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verses 9 and 10. Paul points back to the time of conversion here. That's what he's speaking about. This time of the putting off of this old self and the putting on of this new self. That was the moment of our conversion. That was the time when God imparted spiritual life to our dead hearts so that we, being born of the Spirit at that moment, came to repent and believe the gospel. The Father drew us to His Son, and the Son gave us life by means of the Holy Spirit, and we were made alive and given a new heart and a new spirit. That's the new birth. That's what it means to be born again. It's a radical transformation that God brings about in the inner man, in the heart of the one who believes. So in Christ, then, the implication is that we are no longer who we used to be. You who are in Christ are no longer who you once were. In in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer hostile in our minds towards God. Those are now the former days. Those are the days we look back upon and thank God that we are no longer living in. That person, who we used to be, with his or her sinful practices and way of life, that person has been put off. If you are in Christ, that person is the old self. And by the saving grace of God, our old self has been replaced with the new self, which Paul says is being conformed from the inside out to the likeness of Christ. We are, as Paul says in verse 10, being renewed in knowledge after his image. After his image. That's our our sanctification. That's the Christian life. God is doing a gracious, mighty work in us to conform us to the likeness of his son. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Paul begins to explain what the image of Christ in us should look like. And he lists the qualities of Christ-likeness that should adorn us, hence the title. Paul has already spoken to the fact that any earthliness in us, worldliness in us, um, that is reminiscent of our old sinful ways, that should be stripped off and cast aside. And as Paul says in Romans, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make No provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Sinful attitudes and behavior are unfitting for those who have been redeemed from their bondage to sin and who now belong to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When the Lord saved us, the old self, along with its filthy garments, was cast off and replaced by the new self, and the new self which has been washed and sanctified by the Spirit of God, requires a new set of clothes. Holy attire. 
And in our text this morning, there's laid out for us a, a set of Christ-like virtues with which we are to clothe ourselves so that we may be more and more like our Lord. And let's read the passage, verses 12 through 15. What are we to put on then? Well, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now notice in verse 12 that Paul first points to our identity in Christ before he exhorts us to put on these godly virtues. He's essentially calling all Christians to live in a way that is consistent with who they truly are. And who are we? Well, Paul says we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And this was not our own doing. It was the gracious gift of God. Scripture says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And if you have been born again through faith In Christ, it is not because you chose God, but because He chose you. We only love because He first loved us. All of us were dead set on persisting in our rebellion against God until God intervened and gave us life in Christ and made us His own. If He did not intervene, we would have persisted on the path of destruction in our foolish rebellion against our Creator. Through the Holy Spirit, We have been united with Christ, and in this way, we we not only have been set apart and thus made holy, but we have also become the the recipients of God's fatherly love. That is, the love that God has for His Son, the love that the Father has for His Son, is poured out on us as well. Paul says we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We share in the experience of the fatherly love that Christ intimately enjoys. How then ought we to live? Chosen, holy, and beloved, how then ought you to live? What characteristics should we bear? What qualities should we display? Paul gives us that answer in this passage. Christians are to be clothed with, essentially what we see here, the virtues of Christ. The Father predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And when He called us, He reconciled us to Himself in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That is His goal for us. That is His purpose. That's His will for us. And He Himself will bring this to fulfillment completely when He glorifies us truly. And at that point, we will receive a resurrection like Christ and be made perfect. But until that day, God has empowered us by His Spirit and equipped us with His Word 
to put on the virtues of Christ and to grow in Christ-likeness now. And that is his will for us, for us here and now. Paul exhorts us to, to put into practice the reality of our position in Christ. And he's basically saying, you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now live this out. How? By clothing yourselves with the virtues of Christ. Imagine that, we can picture just with this imagery here, we can imagine a, that there's before us a, a majestic wardrobe with a sign on it that says Christian apparel, true Christian apparel. And Paul is there as the commissioned stylist selecting for you the most excellent attire that not only will be the most appropriate for the important position that you hold, but will also have you looking your absolute best. And by the way, your best look in the eyes of God is that which resembles his beloved son. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but God has set the standard of what that looks like. And he says, for us to look at his son, that is perfection. And he is conforming us to the image of Christ. So what does the Apostle Paul select for us that we might be properly clothed as God's holy and beloved children? Well, in verse 12, he says, put on compassionate hearts. And so he begins this list of these Christ-like virtues. Put on compassionate hearts. More literally translated, the phrase is bowels of compassion. The bowels, that is, one's inward parts, particularly one's internal organs, were considered in the ancient world to be the seat and source of one's emotions. And of course, in modern English, we refer to, well, the heart as the seat of our emotions. And we, we would say, I love you with all my heart, rather than I, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> of course, you can be unique and try that on Valentine's Day. Um, see what reaction you get. But either way, we get the sense. And the sense is that our, our, in that expression, our love is coming from the depths of our inner being. And the idea is that it is truly and deeply felt and thus is strong and sincere. It's not just empty words. And so we, when we consider that we are being called to put on hearts of compassion, we are being told that compassion should be a prominent characteristic in the seat of our emotions. It should not be absent in our feelings towards others. Rather, it should be abundant. Compassion is, simply put, the display of concern over another's misfortune. It's a concern for others. It is, it is heartfelt sympathy. There's a feeling of distress and pity over the suffering and hardship of another, often accompanied by the desire to alleviate it. And this is an emotion that, by definition, can only be felt when we are not focused on ourselves, but are considering the well-being of others. You see, earthliness, sinfulness, uh, is, is self-focused and self-centered. That's what sin is at its core. It's just this, this excessive focus and concern for self above all else. But compassion is others-focused and Christ-like. And we are to what? Put on hearts of compassion. 
We are to be a compassionate people. The Lord himself had compassion on others. And that is to characterize our hearts as well. Next, Paul says we are to put on kindness. And this is the quality of being helpful or beneficial. It's the desire and willingness to, to do good to others and to be generous. And when you put on kindness, you, you put on a readiness to go out of your way to do good to others. To be a blessing and help to them without expecting anything in return. One commentator says that the design of the gospel is not only to soften the minds of men, but to sweeten them and to promote friendship among men as well as reconciliation with God. We have to put on compassionate hearts, kindness. And in addition to compassionate hearts and kindness, Paul tells us we are to put on humility. Humility is the, the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of arrogance and boastfulness. It is the grace of lowliness. And it moves you to regard others as more important than yourself. That's what true humility is. And Paul said in his letter to the Christians at, uh, another letter uh, to Christians at Philippi, he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ at his first coming is the greatest example of humility. He, being the Son of God, voluntarily stepped down from his glorious throne in heaven in order to take on flesh and to be born into this fallen world in the humblest of circumstances, in the lowest of circumstances, not in order to be served as he rightfully deserved, but in order to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, in order to redeem us, save us from our sins. And we are called to follow in his steps, follow his example, and clothe ourselves with the grace of lowliness. And this grace of lowliness, humility, is what produces the next quality. What is that? Well, Paul tells us, to put on meekness. This is also translated in a number of other translations as gentleness. The underlying Greek word, priorites, is defined as follows. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. It's kind of an extended definition, but it paints a picture there. Meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. If you have put on meekness, then you won't feel compelled to fight or argue with those who offend or oppose you. That's what it looks like to be meek. You won't see the need to retaliate when you are wronged. You will instead have, as one commentator says, the the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it, instead of repaying evil for evil. This is a virtue 
that stems from humility, and it is a demonstration that you truly are entrusting yourself to God. You're entrusting your cause to God. Christ demonstrated this perfectly. The Apostle Peter said that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's meekness. That's Christ-likeness. Next in our passage, the Apostle Paul tells us to put on patience. And the Greek word for patience here specifically refers to the quality of being able to bear up under provocation. In other words, it is perseverance in putting up with difficult, sinful people like you. Like us, right? It's, it's perseverance in putting up with difficult, sinful people like us and not giving in to frustration and anger. That's what, what true patience is. Paul goes on in verse 13 to, to clarify what the grace of patience involves, what this virtue involves. Put on patience, he says, and he, he elaborates, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Now, here's something we should take into consideration. After saying that we need to put on the Christ-like virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Paul then pauses to focus on the concept of patience, to stress it before moving on. He clarifies that it involves bearing with one another and forgiving each other. By having patience towards one another within the fellowship of the church, we are giving ourselves room to grow in Christ in the way that we've been called to here. Because we're all works in progress and because we, we are all at different stages in our sanctification and in our maturity in Christ, we must be patient towards one another. We all wrestle with sin and temptation and stumble along the way in our own sanctification. And at times, we will demonstrate a, towards one another a lack of compassion or kindness or humility or meekness or patience. Has anybody let you down in that way? In the church? Therefore, since this is bound to happen, it's all the more important that we ourselves are, are clothed with patience. Why? So that when this happens to us, we may be ready to extend grace. But being clothed with patience and, and bearing with one another, is a, it's critical to our spiritual unity and health and growth as a local church, to our fellowship. Patience is absolutely critical. And if you are unwilling to bear with your brothers and sisters in Christ in this local church, well, then eventually you're going you're to get frustrated and bail. And you'll later, later on, you'll, you'll do the same thing at the next local church you join because the people there are also works in progress just like the rest of us. And too often we, we expect others in the church to bear with us. And yet we forget that we are likewise to bear with them. It goes both ways. This must be a, a reciprocating grace within Christ's church, bearing with one another. 
and be ready to bear with others, not just to have them bear with you. One commentator says, we have, all of us, something which needs to be born with, be put up with. And this is a good reason why we should bear with others in what is disagreeable to us. We need the same good turn from others, which we are obligated to show them. We want that from others. We should be showing that as well. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another. But what if a brother or sister actually wrongs you? What if someone treats you unjustly? We're not just talking about flaws and in their character or whatever, but, but they've wronged you or treated you unjustly. Well, Paul doesn't say that we are to continually be bearing with others in our fellowship unless someone sins against us. At which point it's time for us to find a new church. He says, if one has a complaint against another, what are we to do? He doesn't skip a beat. Forgive each other. Now, usually we'd want to qualify that. Well, you, you don't understand the, the situation. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, maybe there should be a little bit, it's probably more involved, and I don't know if I can just do that. It's like, no, if you have a complaint against one another, or another, forgive each other. We should be quick to forgive. That's a mark of true patience, a readiness to forgive, willingness to bear up with others and, and to forgive when wronged. In the Gospel of Matthew, when, when Peter asked the Lord Jesus how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, right? So Peter's like already throwing it out. Hey, I'm, I said seven, right? He didn't say a few, right? And it's like seven times. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, the point the Lord was making is that there's to be no limit to our forgiveness of those who sin against us. There's no cap on it. If we're to bear with others, there's more opportunity for us to be offended, to be wronged. And the Lord is saying, and all the more opportunity for you to keep forgiving others. In the Gospel of Luke, the Lord said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He didn't blow it. You must forgive him. And back in our passage, in the second half of verse 13, Paul tells us the manner in which we are to forgive one another. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And how did the Lord forgive you? He forgave you freely, generously, completely, and permanently, full, undeserved, gracious forgiveness. If we truly are going to be bearing with one another, then we must be ready and willing to forgive each other in this way. To demonstrate that kind of forgiveness. To extend that kind of forgiveness and be ready to do so. One commentator says that as we who have so frequently and so grievously offended have nevertheless been received into favor. Again, think of our, our offenses against God. We should manifest the same kindness towards our neighbors by forgiving whatever offenses they have committed against us. 
We have received tremendous mercy from God. We are not to withhold mercy from others. We are to forgive. Now when we come to verse 14, Paul saved the greatest virtue for last. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. A more literal translation would be, and above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is the bond of perfection. Love is the supreme virtue. It, it motivates the other virtues. And every one of these, these lists you see in, in Scripture when it's exhorting Christians of how they are to live and the qualities that are embraced, love is always there. And as, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, Love remains, right? Love endures. Love never fails. The greatest, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. It is the supreme virtue. It, it motivates the other virtues. It is what motivates and fuels our growth in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience towards one another. Love is what would drive you to do that. Love for Christ, love for his church. And apart from love, well, these other virtues would not be virtuous. Earlier in this epistle, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says that Christians are, are knit together in love. They've been knit together in love. And here he says that love is the bond of perfection. Love is the bond. The other virtues don't bind us together. Love does. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And how do we demonstrate such love? Well, in our very list that we've been looking at, by showing compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience towards one another by bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Love is the action. Finally, Paul says in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It is his peace that guards our hearts and minds through the struggles of life. We're called to not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, present our request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all our understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. His peace does that. It guards us. It guards our hearts, including struggles through uh, with, with people personal difficulties we have with, uh, from time to time with each other. We need the peace of Christ to be ruling in our hearts. Paul says, let it rule or be the decisive factor in your hearts. One commentator said that the peace of Christ that characterizes the new self should be a ruling principle or virtue in our innermost being, and it should affect all our relationships. It should undergird our relationship. The peace of Christ should be ruling in our heart. In other words, we must let the peace that comes from Christ be prevailing in our hearts so that we are ready and eager to pursue what makes for peace. 
But Paul says that peace is what God has called us to as one body. And in Christ, we not only have peace with God, but we are also to have peace with one another. Therefore, we should pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of the body of Christ. And we will do this as we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Paul concludes with one final exhortation. He says, be thankful. It's almost like he just throws it in there and be thankful. Be thankful. But it's so critical because we have so much to be thankful to God for. The list is endless, but just considering the context of this passage, just considering what we've been told that we've received from God, we can be thankful for his grace and forgiveness, his kindness and mercies, which are new every morning, his wisdom and his guidance, his promises and provisions by which we we have security and we have hope. Thankfulness to God, gratitude towards God is worship. Thankfulness to God reminds us of our dependency upon him in all circumstances and his sufficiency in supplying us everything we need for life and godliness. Even this list that we saw this morning, it's a high calling. So things that we are to put on, these qualities, and God has said that he has supplied us of what we need to do so, to walk in a manner worthy of him, to become more like Christ. One commentator says that believers who are full of gratitude to God for his gracious calling will find it easier to extend to fellow believers the grace of love and forgiveness and to put aside petty issues that might inhibit the expression of peace in the church. The peace of Christ, at the end of the day, it'll rule in thankful hearts. It's easier for us to let the peace of Christ rule when we are thankful to God. It opens room for that. And so it opens room for us to put on the virtues that we've been called to put on, these Christ-like virtues. And in this passage, I was thinking that this is one of those passages, this is one of those lists that would be probably be great to have written out on a sign, put on a placard, posted up somewhere prominent, in our homes because it tells us this is how you're to get dressed for the day Christian these are the qualities you are to put on and when we get dressed for the day we get ready but we're to prepare our minds for action to to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to to honor him in our conduct and everything we do every day of the week it would be a good list to have in our homes and not only in our homes but maybe as you come into this church Did you get dressed appropriately for church? Not talking about wearing a tie, not talking about wearing certain attire. I'm talking about, did you come? Have you put on compassion? Have you put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love? That's what it looks like to be properly dressed for church. That's what it looks like to be properly dressed every day as a Christian. God looks at the heart. We can get so fixated on outward appearances, but God is concern for our hearts. That's his concern. That's his focus. That's what he's weighing. That's what he is examining. And we also know that 
He has our best interests in mind, and he will bring the, us to that end that he's appointed for us. He's doing his work in us to make us more like Christ. But he's calling us to, to join him in that, to put on these qualities. So with thankful hearts that are being ruled by the peace that comes from Christ, we need to make it our aim to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and above all else, love. This is true Christian apparel. This is how we should get dressed each day. It is pleasing to God. It is fitting for every occasion. And I want those qualities to sink in your mind. And I want you to go back to this verse. And let it be something that you go back to continually, because again, we think it sounds simple, but it is really the bread and butter of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. These should be qualities that we were pursuing every day, and we need those reminders, because our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak, and oftentimes we can, well, we can become hard in our hearts, hardened in our hearts, a little short with people, a little too self-focused, a little too much. Uh, we need a reminder that we need to be humble and to consider the concerns of others, to, to love one another in the fellowship of this church, and to glorify Christ in that way. That being said, why don't we go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage and, and just these critical reminders that, that we need to hear so often. We know that uh, indwelling sin uh, causes all sorts of problems and, and how we live, and, and you've called us to put those to death, to put those things off. You've appointed better things for us, and those better things are the way of righteousness that you've laid out for us. We are called to follow in the steps of your Son. Help us to put off sinful attitudes and, and selfish actions and, and to put on the virtues you have called us to so that we may be conformed to the likeness of Christ. We know that that is what pleases you. That is what glorifies you. We pray that you would help us to do this. We pray that you would help us to encourage one another in these things so that we as a church may continue to grow together in love and maturity in Christ. That our fellowship would be characterized by these qualities, known for these qualities. And we thank you for your gracious gift of salvation through Jesus and for your gracious work of sanctifying us by your Spirit. And we thank you for the hope of future glory which you have promised us and the comfort we have received from you, knowing that we will be kept in your love, until you finish the good work you began in us. We give thanks and glory and honor and praise to you, and Lord, we pray again to continue doing your work of sanctifying us. Help us to walk in love. Help us to put on Christ-likeness. Let that be our aim every day, Father. Help us in that. Give us the grace to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.